Welcome to Four Quarter Lives and to exploring the profound impact of longer, healthier, and more engaged lives for ourselves, our couples, for companies and countries. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox. After the last episode's UK focus, we're now going to zoom out. As we learned last week from Aviva's Alistair McQueen, longevity and aging is challenging enough in rich countries. What does it mean for low and income countries? To explore this question, my guest today is Dr. Vijith Iyengar. He's the AARP's Director of Global Aging. He leads cutting-edge research on global aging issues. This involves everything from financial resilience and health security to the human rights of older persons and their social connectedness. He's a cognitive neuroscience by training. But before joining the AARP, Vija served three U.S. government administrations in a variety of roles, including as brain health lead and technical advisor to the deputy assistant secretary for aging. Not many people have as global an overview of what aging means for the world as he does, and how adequately or not different countries are adapting to this massive 21st century shift. So today I'm delighted to welcome Vijeth Iyengar from AARP to Four Quarter Lies. Vijeth, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. You have a great title, right? You are the Director of Global Aging at the <laughs> AARP. And so I want you to help us understand two things. One, who you are, and one, what the AARP is for our international listeners. And I want to start perhaps with you. Why is there a neuroscientist working on global aging? And when did you get interested in this whole subject? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I appreciate it. My entry point to healthy aging and longevity is a bit circuitous, but the initial point of entry was research. And so I'm a cognitive neuroscientist by training and was part of a research lab at Duke University here in the U.S. from 2010 to 2016. We were handling questions that were quite esoteric in terms of how we form memories, where they're stored in the brain, how we retrieve those memories to function in daily life and society. And the I'm lab was retrieving them so well these days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And my memory is very bad. And they say to study what you're bad at. And this was that. And the lab was interested in fleshing out the neural circuitry behind this. And so we examined this in younger college age students and also older adults that were living in the community in the state of North Carolina. So that was my initial foray into cognitive aging and the, and the aging as a research field. Four years into my PhD, I realized I wanted to be able to marry the research expertise with policy and to work on problems of scale and societal impact. So I made a slight career pivot and went to the U.S. federal government in 2016 and had the great fortune to work in a variety of, of positions across the U.S. federal government as well as the Pan American Health Organization, the World Health Organization's regional office for the Americas here in Washington. And after three presidential administrations, I joined ARP in January 22, 2022 as Director of Global Aging. Enough politics. Let's get let's get into something <laughs> that doesn't change every four years. So ARP, tell us tell us what it is. Huge, big, influential American association. Yeah, absolutely. Well, ARP was formerly known as the American Association of Retired Persons, but now it's simply referred to as AARP. And we're 65-year-old. We don't talk about retired persons anymore, right? We do, but we're, we're simply referred to as AARP. Yep. And we're a 65-year-old organization with headquarters in Washington, D.C. in the United States. 
We were founded in 1958 by Dr. Ethel Percy Andres, who is a California educator. And thanks to her vision, back in the 50s, ARP is now the world's largest nonprofit, nonpartisan organization for the 50-plus population, having more than 35 million members in the United States. 35 million members. That's, that's influence. It's sizable. It's influence. It helps inform our advocacy, our research efforts. But we're guided by North Star and that we want to be champions of positive social change through our advocacy, research, and service efforts, empowering people to navigate issues related to financial well-being and health, to being active contributors to their society and community. And so, as you mentioned, Aviva, while many of your listeners might be familiar with our domestic U.S. work, we've actually been engaged globally for nearly five decades or so. And just two quick examples. In 1973, AARP was one of a dozen organizations that helped create the International Federation on Aging, a major NGO in Toronto. In 1987, we were granted consultative status to the United Nations Economic and Social Council, otherwise known as ECOSOC. And we actually have a member of our team that's based in New York to help AARP advocate on behalf of older adults and our members everywhere to the UN on issues of importance. We have a strong belief that good ideas have no borders, and we take a partnership approach to ensuring that we're making an impact for both older adults, members and non-members alike. So you have this huge, I mean, you have this huge national base in the U.S., global reach and influence and interests for decades now. Do you get a sense that this is AARP's peak time, that things and trends are all turning its way and you've never been more relevant? I think that's a great question. I, I I I don't know if I'd characterize it as peak time. I think there is, we are seeing forward momentum globally from actors that are non-traditional aging organizations and entities that all of a sudden are talking about population aging, demographic shifts, and what that might mean for society as to how society is governed and how it's functioned. And so what we're trying to do is through partnerships with, say, the World Economic Forum and the Organization of of Economic Cooperation Development, OECD, we're trying to elevate issues important for older adults to different non-traditional stakeholders so that we can actually seize on that global momentum and take it forward. It's not a peak time. It's more so we still see the wave getting higher and higher. And we see that. It hasn't crested yet. Exactly. It's exactly. And we're trying to seize on that momentum. So we want to explore this report that you've just published called Achieving Equitable Healthy Aging in Low and Middle Income Countries. I want to start a little bit with terms and definitions because it gets complicated very quickly in this area. And first, we'll start by defining what are low and middle income countries versus developed, developing, all the other segmentations we've heard. They're multiplying. Can you just give us what (laughs) your report uses? Yeah, so there's a lot of nomenclature out there. There's developed versus developing, emerging versus advanced. Our report uses the World Bank income classification. And so the World Bank has four groupings. It's low income, low middle income economies upper middle income economies, and lastly, high income economies. And so the way that calculated, not to get too in the weeds, but it's usually the gross national income per capita yep. or the dollar value of a country's final income in a, in a particular year 
divided by its mid-year population total. And so the World Bank, from my understanding, made the shift in 2015 or 2016 for the very crux of your question, Aviva, in the sense that develop, developing, those were really broad terms that were lumping together countries that had a lot of different conditions and were too heterogeneous and weren't actually useful ways to bin and then analyze where countries are. So we use the World Bank in complexity. It was mostly the emergence of this huge middle that was neither high nor low. I remember very, very interesting talks from Hans Rosling arguing that you know this huge growing middle didn't deserve to be referred to as low and it yeah. wasn't quite yet developed either. So yeah, so we're getting I think, better, but we need to uh, refine a little bit our segmentations. Absolutely. And I think this does that. And if you look, if you go into World Bank reports, there's actually dollar figures that have cutoffs and boundaries for each of the four classifications. And so we wanted to use the classification of art that's been mostly adopted in the literature. And so that's what we use for the report. Okay. So we won't get into the dollar amounts. We're going to refer people to the World Bank, but (laughs) we understand that we're focusing on low and middle income countries. And you use a term I want to also introduce, which is called equitable aging, which I think is very important. Can you help us understand what do we mean by equitable aging? It's a term of art that refers to this idea that all individuals, regardless of background, should have a fair and just opportunity to optimize both their health and well-being at all stages of life and critically be able to fulfill their health potential to age well. And the reason why we chose this term is that there's great alignment with international global frameworks for aging. And so the Madrid International Plan of Action on Aging, while to my memory does not use equity explicitly, has in its goals areas in which policymakers should focus on that would advance health equity or equitable aging. If we look at the UN 2030 Agenda for the Sustainable Development Goals or SDGs, There are three SDGs that are focused on equity, you know, SDG three on good health and well-being, SDG five on gender equality and SDG 10 that says reduced inequalities. And then lastly, the most recent global framework is the UN Decade of Healthy Aging Plan of Action from 2021 to 2030, where equity is at the crux and is at the core rather of its goals and mission. So we're going to talk a lot about aging, which refers to another word, which is how do we define old? And here there are so many definitions now and so many different segmentations that it's sometimes really hard. So the World Bank, I think, is going for 65. The World Health Organization is going for 60. The AARP, you can you get your membership card as soon as you turn 50, I think. You get a letter from the Queen in the UK when you turn 100. That might be our new segmentation. But what do you do with all this? How do you how do you define old and what number are we going to start agreeing on if we are going to start agreeing on one? You hit on a question that's honestly an open empirical question that's actually serving as a barrier for progress and riddling the aging and longevity community with many, many challenges. And so in the ARC 4.0 report that you alluded to earlier in the conversation, we use we benchmark older adults at 65 and over. Oftentimes, the threshold is defined by a country's average life expectancy or statutory retirement ages or particular government health insurance safety net program. And so, as you mentioned, there is no older age benchmark. 
some have used 60, some have used 65 and over, some have used 62 and over. As a result... It's really hard to compare countries or... Policy. Exactly. That, that's what I was getting to. As a result, within country comparison is quite manageable. Between country comparison is a lot harder. And so if one were to do an analysis as to comparing low income versus low and middle income, it's quite difficult. Fortunately, regionally, there seems to be an easier analysis than across regions. And so this is an open question that if you talk to a lot of experts in the field, they'll say we need to do better in terms of standardizing an age, yep. but it's something to address. This is why I call this podcast Four Quarter Lives. Maybe we can <laughs> 50, 75, 100. We'll, we'll work on that, but to come. So one of, one of the key recommendations of this report, and it's again a little bit of a definition issue, is you're arguing for the need for a life course model. And yep. I think, one, I want to know what that is. And what do we currently have that isn't? What, is, what are we moving from and to? So the, the idea is that healthy aging is considered an issue to address in late life. That's the current model. The mental model is that only care about healthy aging when you reach 60 or maybe 50, but that's not something that should be thought about at every age or stage of life. And so a life course intervention model or mental model says that you should be thinking about aging in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s and your 50s. And so when you do reach late life, you're taking the necessary steps, you're addressing the modifiable risk factors to then ensure that you're aging healthily in late life. Part of it is that if you look at many health ministries, if you look at even in the U.S. government, aging is a separate department. Yeah. It's quite siloed yeah. for a variety of reasons. But the WHO has done a great job in demonstrating leadership and in, in saying we should all be adopting a life course approach to aging. You're not just aging when you reach 60. You're aging every day. We're aging right now. Yep. Right. And so, so parents, so parents when their kids are born, should know that they're probably going to be live to be 100 and open that savings account <laughs> with a few pennies a year to get them through some compound interest over 10 decades now. And that's tough. It's really hard to talk to the younger crowd, although they're in yes. when you do talk about them. What's the reaction in your experience? Do they want to listen? I, I think they listen. I think there there is a greater movement towards intergenerational solidarity, towards the value of different aged cohorts learning from one another. And so you might see that there is a, a reframing of healthy aging to healthy longevity or increasing the number of, of, of years of, of health span. And so reframing it as longevity is an opportunity to demonstrate that at any age, you should be thinking about this. And so there is an opportunity there to engage younger folks and to also learn from them as to what might be their greatest concerns as they progress towards their life course. I love this guy online who's quite well known among the young called Tim Urban. And I love his very evocative graphs of our life is 80,000 weeks long. And how are you using them? <laughs> so <laughs> I think what we have to invent some kind of new mappings of what a life. So Let's move on to all the challenges you address in this report, which are immense, fascinating, and a little terrifying. By 2050, there are going to be a second billion people over 60 on the planet. Are we ready anywhere? What do you think? So I'm a scientist by heart, so it's always difficult to talk in absolutes. And so there are some regions of the world that are highly aware of population aging, that have experienced demographic shifts, that have experienced 
declines in the rate of their population growth. And as a result, population aging and societal implications are top of mind. So North America comes to mind, uh, regions of Western Europe, East Asia, Japan, for example, Singapore, they're robust models in terms of their thinking on population aging. And so those are models that would hold up. I tend not to use the word successful, good versus bad, but those are models that we they're see. Doing, they're doing something. They're innovating and moving and recognizing. The there's the, right. There's a greater recognition of population aging and rightfully so, given the demographic shifts that they're experiencing. Which have been announced and happening for quite some time. So one of the reasons you're focusing on lower and middle income countries, as I understand it, is that aging is speeding up. Why? Can you tell us why there's a difference between high income countries that have had some time to get used to this and have been developing some policies and the rest? Why are they moving suddenly and so fast? To put some numbers to that point. And so the reason why we were excited to focus on low and middle income countries was that the data was pointing us in that direction. And so by 2050, 77% of the of people age 65 and over will be living in low and middle income countries. If we look at the, the years between 2022 and 2050, the 65 and over population in, in these countries will grow over two and a half times the population of high income economies. And so why is aging speeding up? And so we can see there are a couple of hypotheses or factors that other folks have also talked about. You know, one could be declines in infant mortality rates. They're actually experiencing rate, higher rates of population growth. There's increased longevity due to advances in medical technology and service delivery. And as such, the highest rates of population growth or aging, uh, I should say, will be experienced in those countries. Conversely, in, in high income economies, we see decades of declining fertility rates. We see increased longevity and actually large swaths of population cohorts aging at the same time. And as a result, we see that the trend lines are going in reverse directions and LMICs will continue to experience higher rates of population growth, but as a result, population aging. And so if we look at areas that are experiencing youth bulges, say Africa, for example, in the decades to come, they will be confronted with some of the pressures that come with population aging. So LMICs, which you slipped in there, which is low and middle income countries for those who aren't paying attention to this. So really what you're saying is it's all good news. It's the fact that less child mortality, better health outcomes, longer lives. So there's all this good news that's now spreading across a broader range of countries that is creating this sudden acceleration in aging. I think that's accurate to say these more upstream effects are going to have downstream impacts in terms of people living longer. And so they're both, you know, we don't like framing this as a challenge, but it's opportunity. And so there are many opportunities that governments, both at the local level and at the national level, can tap into to ensure the economic contributions of their aging population are harnessed for growth. We can hardly be complaining about better health outcomes and lower infant mortality. I mean, that would be uh, rather sad. So what are, what are the biggest differences we're looking at between these high-income countries and the LMICs? What's, what's the big gap? So from the report, we drew four conclusions or four factors that are driving these large-scale differences between 
low and middle income countries and high income countries. In low income countries, we have large informal economies. And so 89% of the workers that we, we highlight in the report, age 65 and older, are informally employed. And so what does that mean? And so that means lack of employment contracts, a lack of workers' benefits, and therein lack of social protection. The 89% that we see in low and middle income countries in terms of the informal workers is double the percentage that we find in high income economies. And so that was one factor that we targeted. Which means if they're in informal work, not only do they not have contracts and work contracts, they also have no pensions and no... Exactly. And so that, if you dovetail that with the second factor that we highlight, uh, public health systems are, are largely underdeveloped. And so many of the expenditures as a percentage of health are from out-of-pocket. And so there's a lot of out-of-pocket or large percentage of out-of-pocket expenditures as a percentage of health compared to high-income countries. And the percentage of those that are covered by a particular social health scheme is quite low in low- and middle-income countries. And so if you if we compare that with social protections and sort of the situation of social protections, to your point, Aviva, they're not as robust as they could be in low- and middle-income countries. And so we looked at rates of those that are covered by a social, one social protection benefit are those above retirement age receiving a pension are those covered by social assistance. There are massive gaps in both coverage and adequacy in, in low and middle income countries. And so and the one other factor that I want to highlight is political will. And so we see in many countries that legislative policies, look they lack imperative or support for older adults. And so coming back to this point in the sense that these are some of the challenges that are unique to low and middle income countries. But if we zoom out, this idea of, of health inequities in older adults, high income countries also face. And so that's something that I want to continue to hammer in that it's not just a low and middle income country. I was going to say, you've just highlighted the issues of pensions, care and robust policies. And I was going to say, well, that sounds very similar and familiar to any of us tracking these issues in high income countries. So a lot of similarities, probably just more extreme. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. It's a lot of similarities, but they tend to be more acute in LMICs. So does that also mean that if we share the same issues, we share the same solutions? Is it going to be just an issue of kind of exporting and developing similar solutions we've had here, or are we going to need something really entirely different? I think there are there are shared solutions and insights that we can learn from one another. And so if we look at the overlap in terms of the issues that both high-income countries and low- and middle-income countries are facing, there are four areas that we highlight in the report. One is gender disparities. And so across income classification, women are living longer and in more years of poor health in later life. The other is this rural-urban divide that's creating in turn a digital divide. And so by 2030, over 3 billion are going to be residing in rural areas. 95% of this 3 billion will be from low and middle income countries. We see that data deserts continue to drive policy and action. And so two quick data points that were interesting to us is only 32% of countries have nationally representative cross-sectional data. And secondly, 24% have longitudinal data. And so critically, they're lacking in disaggregated data by age, 
race and ethnicity. And lastly, the fourth area that is shared across high income economies or countries rather and low and middle income countries is this global mega trend of urbanization, which is changing family dynamics and the networks of care. And so there's increased burden and challenges posed on the informal caregiver. And so one could imagine policy solutions or prescriptions that target those four shared challenges across income classification for countries are ripe areas for bi-directional learning. And again, if I'm translating a little bit through what you're saying, it gender, urban, and networks of care, that has a lot to do with what women are doing, right? Which is the other big trend across time is the emergence of women into labor force participation, but it pulls them out of both rural areas and care roles. And so how do we redistribute all of those care roles, which is something that is in high exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You need that 48-year-old woman who seems to be the average caregiver for all the elderly who we no longer have here. They're not going to have them there either. Exactly. And it's increasingly getting younger and younger. And so we see also opportunities or trends in sandwich generation of folks that are caring for both kids and their parents that are aging. And so providing the enough assistance, support for those informal caregivers which shoulder the majority of healthcare services and deliveries, which their services are getting increasingly complex, is going to be vital to ensure healthy longevity, healthy aging in a, in a particular country. Okay, so this sounds huge. I'm sure we've depressed more than one <laughs> immense billion. You know, we're talking huge numbers, billions. Only a third of countries even have some kind of data to track this stuff. Luckily, your report does focus on solutions. So that's how we're going to end is you're outlining 14 initiatives that deliver. I recommend the report. It makes some interesting reading. But I'm just going to ask you to summarize. What would you say is the top three recommendations or priorities that emerge? I'll give you one, a bonus. <laughs> give me a bonus. A bonus one. <laughs> I'll, I'll say four, but uh, make it very quick and, and practical. So one is, it's clear. I think this is pretty obvious. There's immediate action that is required for data governance and infrastructure. Nationally collected data need to be inclusive of the older population and disaggregated by socioeconomic factors. I think I would say number two. And by gender, something we've been fighting for forever. So, 100%, absolutely. Number two, I would say an emphasis on intersectionality. And so not everyone ages in the same way. Older adults are not a monolithic group. There's great heterogeneity. There's great disparities experienced. And so policies and programs that target intersecting segments of gender, race, ethnicity, ability, geography, and socioeconomic status are critical in terms of ensuring its effectiveness. Yep. I would say three, a focus on community-centered approaches to effectively serve, to effectively reach, however, underserved and, and unserved groups is essential. Malawi's Kawunda community-based health insurance program is a, is a model for that which brings together village residents and leaders and community-based health workers together and mobilizes them to oversee operation and management of health insurance payments. And lastly, I'm going to hammer this point again in terms of political will and sustained government action. And we see remarkable progress in Colombia, India, Thailand, and Vietnam in terms of ensuring and expanding pension and healthcare coverage as a result of sustained government action over years. And so those are the four 
areas of opportunity we see in terms of a solutions-oriented approach to combat health inequities when it comes to healthy aging. So those four recommendations sound a lot like what they call mainstreaming. So one of your arguments is we've got to mainstream aging as we have done or are arguing we need to do for climate and gender. What does that mean when we're mainstreaming it? Mainstreaming aging is a term that will be familiar to a global audience, less so in the United States. But it's this idea that every policy, every program, every initiative at every level of government should embed aging into their decision or to their design, development and implementation. They should be carrying out these programs, designing these programs through an aging lens. And there are a couple of benefits from mainstreaming aging. One is that ensuring that programs and policies reflect the needs of older persons, ensure optimization of resources from policymakers. It'll ensure that it acknowledges rather that every level of government has a stake, so to speak, when it comes to population aging. And that this requires all of government, all of society approach. It's not just one department of ministry of health or department of labor or ministry of labor that is in charge of this, it should be all across all of government. And it curbs the marginalization of older persons and, and their overall social exclusion and brings them into the fold and doesn't treat them as a separate category of a population segment. And so there, there are many benefits to mainstreaming aging. And this is sort of a, a philosophy that the UN espouses. And certainly we see great value. And that's something that we're trying to do. And we all already see here in the United States, these multi-sector plans of aging these MPAs, these action plans on aging that different states are doing in the United States, California, for example, or New York, to be able to account for resources, programs, policymaker attention around this particular topic of aging. It reminds me very much of in the corporate sector, companies used to do with digital. They used to have a little digital department on the <laughs> side until suddenly they did wake up eventually to the fact that digital was in everything they touched and did and sold and hired. So that kind of shift, I mean, we're still very much looking at aging, I would think, in that little departmental role. And this idea that it's going to flow across every part of a company's policy is not yet quite in motion. You're right. It's still siloed. We're trying to break down those silos. AARP yeah. is our, our global network of collaborators and partners. And we're trying to broaden the, the tent, so to speak, and bring in non, these, as I mentioned before, non-traditional actors to the table, whether it be private sector, whether it be public sector, whether it be NGOs, whether it be multilateral development banks or international financial institutions, such as the World Bank, where population aging isn't prioritized yep. and where it could be. And yep. so that's where a lot of our advocacy efforts informed by research, informed by say the ARC 4.0 report, that's where a lot of our energy is investing in terms of making a persuasive case as to why countries should focus on this. Any shift post-pandemic? I mean, we saw just how much harm we can do to old people if we don't center them into policymaking. Was that a it, global wake-up call? I would agree so. I think the majority of folks that were affected by the pandemic, whether it be getting COVID or are succumbing to it, unfortunately, were older adults. And we saw high levels of ageism during older adults on us versus them mentality. And so, frankly, the conversations have been, have been easier relative to make the, the case that 
yes, you should invest in older adults. We saw what happened during the pandemic and the pandemic's still ongoing and people are still affected. But yes, a lot of younger people. And they it affected it affected across generations, but critically, we saw that folks that we saw digital divide, we saw access issues of access, affordability, quality of care, we saw inequalities arise in several historically marginalized populations, and so it goes again to this idea of intersectionality, and so layering age not as a vertical but as a horizontal is critical to then be able to have those conversations and. That's been one silver lining, as crude as that might be to say, of the pandemic. If you only take one takeaway from this conversation, it's got to be that, right? That aging is a horizontal, not a vertical. I think that's a very nice summary. Now, now let's jump into a few big countries that are really f- different places on the aging spectrum. We're, go- we're going to talk about three that you describe in the report. So China... India and Nigeria, there are a few billion right there. What is that? A third of the global population. Uh, (laughs) What's going on? Where are they? And what spectrum would you describe? So on the ARC four-pointer report, we did a landscape analysis of all LMICs. And then we did a deep dive on a couple of countries selected for both data availability, geographical diversity, and heterogeneity. And so we focused on India, Nigeria, where we did a deep dive, and we also touch on China as well. And so the India state of play, there's going to be, there's nearly 100 million people in India age 65 and older, and this is going to grow by 155% to 250 million by 2050. We talk about informal employment, 97% of workers age 65 and over in India are informally employed. The income inequality there, as as we we share in the report is higher than both the averages for low and middle income countries and high income countries. And so we see income inequality gap. It's not all bad news, so to speak. There's some promising practices. And one thing that we highlight is that we have the largest government health insurance program in the world, touching close to or with the goal of touching close to 500 million people from poor and vulnerable families. And so that's a point of light. The other is the longitudinal aging study from 2017 to 2019, its first iteration. And this is actually a full-scale national survey of health, economic, and social determinants that is planned to be repeated every three years. That's sort of the state of play in India. Now, if we go to Nigeria... And it's interesting uh, because, I mean, India used to be seen as a really young country. I mean, for a long time, it was the young country. And mm -hmm. yet you're pointing to this really fast acceleration. It is a fast acceleration, but then if you look at, to your point, India, I think is what, 1.1, 1.2 billion? Yeah. 100 million people of that are 65 and older. And so it's still, they're still experiencing, I would say that the, the government and policymakers acknowledge this as a, a potential area for further improvement. But as you mentioned, it's still a very much a young country. The same situation in Nigeria. And so Nigeria is very interesting. It's Africa's largest economy. And it's the most populated country and has the highest share of older adults on the continent. 6.5 million people are age 65 and older in 2022. And this is in Nigeria, it's going to grow by 148% to 16 million in 2050. And so there are also some promising points of light. In 2022, they signed the National Health Insurance Authority Act to expand health coverage to all Nigerians. And this complements their National Social Protection Policy Act in 2021. And so there are some promising points of light in terms of actual legislation when we dug in a little bit deeper into the state of play in Nigeria. 
China, as I mentioned, we did do a deep dive analysis of China. But one thing we did highlight is uh, a great data effort there that is actually inspired by the health and retirement savings study here in the U.S. And so their data effort is referred to as the China Health and Retirement Longitudinal Study, or CHARLES. They fielded a baseline survey in 2011, and their idea is to build a nationally representative database on factors ranging from demographics and health status to work, income, wealth assets, to enable scientific research on the older adult population. And so we see that in in each of these countries, very large, very different, different parts of the world, that they're all experiencing aging at different paces. What's the China percentage? Do you know it? Of the overseas? Not offhand. Not not offhand. But they're a much older group already. Yeah, they're a much older group. You know, we saw recently in the New York Times and and elsewhere that their population is shrinking. And so for the first time. And so we see that in each of these countries, there are different population aging dynamics at play. But in the decades to come, they're going to experiencing a larger share of the pie of their population segment that will be older. And so there's great opportunities and already encouraging signs, both legislatively and from just pure data collection governance in each of these countries. So governments are moving a bit in a lot of places, a lot of big places, even a lot of lower middle income countries. It's huge. The challenge does sound huge. And inevitably, there'll be people all across the spectrum. And so there's this push that for an actual legal right and a convention on the rights of older people. Can you tell us a bit about this? I'm sure most listeners will have heard of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Handicapped. Yeah. And so similar, is it different? Similar in principle. I, I think you're right. This is sort of a topic du jour, the UN Convention on the Rights of Older Persons. It's a topic that's talked about in many high-level convenings, including the UN Open-Ended Working Group on Aging that will take place in New York in April. The idea behind the convention is that not all governments have legislation to protect older adults against ageism or discrimination in the workplace, against societal exclusion. And so a convention on the rights of older persons would enable binding, legally binding agreements and doctrine to protect older persons. Some countries are for it. You know, Argentina has been a, a real leader on it. Some countries have said that we already have legal protections that touch on older adults. Why do we need a specific doctrine or convention for older adults? You know, ARP's position in June of 2022, the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe uh, held a ministerial conference on aging uh, as part of these regional meetings for the MIPA, for the Madrid International Plan of Action on Aging. And our chief public policy officer came out publicly and and expressed great enthusiasm and seeing the international community coming together to realize the potential for action that a convention on the rights of older people would provide. And so there's a robust debate towards it. I assume the benefit of getting this kind of convention is exactly what your report is trying to do. It puts it on the agenda. It sets a kind of global minimum standard and shares these 14 initiatives that you are highlighting across more countries faster than we might otherwise do. Yeah, I think it's, it's, um, it could be a potential tool to help curb disparities in healthy aging. And so there's been a lot of advocacy around having a convention. And so we're hopeful that there's more movement there. And and I'm glad to see that the global community is coming together on that. So we're going to end a little bit on 
what can we do? What what call to action might you ask of all the different sorts of people listening across different countries, different sectors? Maybe it's to get this aging issue out of the kind of silo some people might be still putting it in? Yeah, I think there in the report, we have calls to action for different segments of the society. And so for governments, you know, having a comprehensive aging plan is necessary and critical to ensuring an aging lens is incorporated into any policy and program that enough so get resources. A, get, a, get a national strategy. Get a national strategy, build up your data governance and infrastructure. Yep. And we see that governments and public sector can play a role in that. At the individual level, individuals have a unique ability to contribute to an age-friendly society and to combat ageism and discrimination where they see it and to be able to engage in intergenerational solidarity to ensure that older adults aren't excluded. For the private sector, we did see there's a great role and they're not traditionally at the table. You know, when one thinks about healthy aging. And so we've done a lot of great work and I'm a bit biased. <laughs> we've done some good work in terms of thinking about how to engage the private sector. What are some concrete recommendations? And so we laid out a couple. One is there's an important role private sector can play in addressing the, their employees' health and well-being by improving work-life balance and paid time off allocations. And there's actual empirical data showing that by doing so, it would increase their bottom line, increase productivity, reduce safety incidences, increase quality. Number two, private sector can look at age-inclusive products, services, and designs. And so if you're building out the new iPhone or you're building out a new product or tool, making sure that it's person-centered, that it's older person-centered, they're at the center of the design and development is going to be critical. There's opportunities for also DEI policies. And so for a private sector to incorporate age in their DEI policy is going to be critical. We actually did a survey a couple of years ago with the OECD where we queried 6,000 employers in 36 OECD countries in the fall of 2019. So this is before the pandemic. And we found that 53% of executives surveyed do not include age in a diversity and inclusion policy. But they believe in it. I think over 80% said it was great. And so there's a, there's a gap there that can be filled by private sector. And, and the other thing that I want to bust is this idea that older adults aren't economic engines and they're not contributors to the GDP. And, and I think that is something that we have a good bit of research on showing that older consumers contribute to global GDP in a very substantive manner. And this idea of that disparities by not tackling disparities in aging, it's also quite critical. And so we have a couple of data points showing that disparities in life expectancy could potentially negatively impact the U.S. GDP by $1.6 trillion in 2030. And so there's real dollars and cents by investing in older adults, by investing in, in smart aging policies going forward. Okay, so governments need strategies and policies. Individuals need to reach out across generations and private sector needs to wake up and take care of their employees and get age inclusion into their horizontal strategies. Absolutely. And one right. segment of society that I forgot that we're part of, civil society. Civil, we can't forget civil. Can't forget civil. We're all we're in there. Part of that. We need to keep pushing and being strong advocates and data-informed advocacy is critical, research-informed advocacy, and coming up with this type of research as the ARC or other reports from 
other civil society leaders is essential to then being able to equip and raise awareness and policymakers alike as to the importance of this. I think we've just modeled what we're asking other people to do. We've just dug into your fantastic research, shared it, and pushed to get this higher up on the agenda everywhere, not only in high-income countries, but low and medium ones as well. Thank you so much for sharing all of that knowledge with us. Thank you, Aviva. It's great to be here. Onwards, people. Pay attention to this, no matter what country you're in. Talk soon. For more thinking about the impact of our four-quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better. <laughs>